This week, we're taking a look at one of history's most beloved games and another one on my personal tens list. Hello again, JD here once again with the Gaming Off the Beaten Path podcast. Apologies for the long layoff, but I was sick as a dog last week, so wasn't getting anything done. But we are back, and this week we're going to talk about yet another of my 10s games. You know, I have my list of my 10 out of 10 games, and, you know, it goes without saying, but certain combinations just work, right? Sometimes those combinations are obvious, other times they aren't, you know, and it's weird because this week's game, which is Super Mario RPG, Legend of the Seven Stars for the Super Nintendo, always kind of felt like it fit both categories. On one hand, how could a joint effort from Nintendo and Square, still Squaresoft at the time, go wrong? Both of those companies were riding high, especially in the mid-90s, when it felt like neither of them could do anything wrong, right? It just, like, at the time, they were just so on fire, it didn't feel like they could mess anything up. Yet at the same time, the thought of platforming icon Mario starring in a turn-based RPG felt a little uh, off, you know? How is someone going to take a plumber who jumps on turtles in linear 2D levels and turn him into a full-fledged RPG hero? Would this experiment work? Uh, would it just crash and burn? Was it just a cash grab? I, we didn't really know. I think we all know the answer to that now, but a lot of people really look at this game and they don't really realize why it was so successful, why it's so revered, why it was so well-received, and why it got the remake treatment almost 30 years later. You know, it's not as bad as some examples, but I think a lot of gamers never really understood Super Mario RPG and what it was trying to accomplish and why. I see this game get hated on a lot as, like, a kind of childish game. Um, most of its the criticism leveled against it is that no one would like it if it weren't for nostalgia. And I kind of understand that to a point, but this game kind of has its own uniqueness to it. It kind of had its own, you know, niche that not too many other games occupy, and it kind of accomplished something that not too many other titles, you know, have really done in a way, or I shouldn't say never done, but have never really done well. And to really understand all of that, we need to take a trip back to 1996. So, nowadays, every genre is filled with dark edgy, brooding games with the nihilistic protagonist trudging through a bleak post-apocalyptic world, you know, every game, it almost feels like it's like that. Open world games are dark and edgy. Platformers are dark and edgy. You name it, it's dark and edgy. Oh, so edgy. That wasn't really the case back in the day, you know. Platformers were reserved for cartoon hedgehogs and other mascots hopping and bopping through bright-colored worlds. Action and adventure games tended to offer a little more tension, but were still largely kid-friendly. Uh, of course, there were some alternatives, but many of the more adult-oriented games at the time, it felt like, for me at least, were PC titles, and they were fewer and, and far between. Even the more genres that were more, you know, associated with violence, like beat-em-ups and fighting games, 
tended to be more T-rated affairs, you know, Mortal Kombat and its myriad clones notwithstanding. Yet modern games, you know, and I, that sounds like kind of like a knock on modern games, and it's a criticism I've levied before, but there's a lot of positive that has come to the industry and come to modern games as well. And one of those positives, at least to me, is it seems like everything in every genre nowadays makes at least some effort to have some level of narrative. But again, it wasn't always that way. The turtle kidnapped the princess, the evil doctor kidnapped the animals to turn them into robots, ninjas kidnapped the president. That was the extent of a lot of gaming narratives back in the day. And that extended to the genres, like, you know, the at the time fledgling first-person shooters, that did tend to have more dark and brooding, more adult atmospheres. So having those two together, you know, a kind of more adult content with more adult, like, atmosphere with a good, solid, more adult narrative was not really there. There was really only one genre that was combining those more intense atmospheres with more detailed narratives, at least on a consistent basis. I'm sure there are outliers and, you know, games, especially ones that we consider revolutionary now, but on a consistent basis, there was only one genre that was doing that, and it was RPGs. This may seem ridiculous to someone who wasn't alive or wasn't gaming back then, but at the time, titles like Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Breath of Fire were presenting dense narratives and creating deep lore about topics that most games wouldn't or couldn't go near. You know, that was going to change soon. Things like Metal Gear Solid, Resident Evil were on the horizon, but I've always felt that was a large part of why RPGs were as popular as they were at the time. Like, you know, that quote-unquote golden age, you know, 96 into like 2001 or 2002. A lot of it, I think, had to do with, you know, you had stories in these games that you couldn't find in, you know, the more kiddie, like, hop and bop platformers or even the more adult fighting and shooting games. But, you know, they, they had some level uh, of, like, depth to them. That being said, the genre, even in its best days, was always kind of sort of a background player in the industry, at least here in the United States. Remember, my perspective is very much coming from the United States, or the West. For all the hoopla about how great Final Fantasy VI is, its sales kind of weren't great in comparison to what you'd see in the more popular genres at the time. On console, you had platformers and tournament fighters, they were like 1 and 1A, that was the biggest piece of the pie that developers were battling for. You had these constant clones. There were a variety of reasons as to why, but one of the biggest was down to the accessibility of RPGs. They were often hard to find and difficult to get into if you could find them. Uh, you could be the most brilliant person in the world, but if you pop in a game expecting to jump around and walk in a straight line, only get met with complex stat management and puzzle solving, you're going to get thrown off. RPGs were kind of unlike any other genre and lacked a lot of the widespread appeal that some of those genres did. And what's an easy way to attract some of that appeal? By taking the genre, adding the single most visible video game character on the planet to it, and make it more accessible by simplifying the gameplay while also keeping things as fun as possible. But, before we talk about the gameplay... We have to talk about the story because, and I'll kind of talk about this a little bit later, Super Mario RPG kind of, 
is different than than most entries into the genre, but it is still an RPG, and thus it does have a story that starts out like any Mario game would. Bowser has kidnapped Princess Toadstool. She wouldn't be Peach in the West until Mario 64 dropped a few months later. And once again, dragged her off to his keep. Mario rushes after her, climbing to Bowser's throne room, battling the Koopa King in an epic battle atop a chandelier. As you might expect, Mario defeats Bowser and rescues the princess. And that's where things start to get weird. Because before they can leave together and go back to the Mushroom Kingdom as they always do, a giant sword splits the sky and crashes into Bowser's keep, sending Mario, Toadstool, and Bowser flying. With the bridge to Bowser's keep destroyed, Mario sets out on a quest to find the princess and bring her back to the Mushroom Kingdom. But it's not going to be easy, because this giant sword, who we, we will later learn is named Exor, has brought along with it new and dangerous enemies who call themselves the Smithy Gang. They're searching for mysterious star pieces that have been scattered throughout the world, and they will stop at nothing to get them. When they take over the Mushroom Kingdom to use as their base of operations, or one of their bases of operations, Mario knows they need to be stopped. So throughout his journey, Mario will discover the true nature of the Smithy Gang and why the star pieces are critical to wishes being granted in his world. He's not going to be alone, though, because Toadstool will eventually join Mario on his journey, along with unlikely allies in Mallow, who claims he's a tadpole, despite not looking anything like one, and Gino, an intergalactic traveler from Broken Star Road. But the most unlikely ally here is Bowser, who joins up with his nemesis in an effort to reclaim his keep from the Smithy Gang. Oh, look... That's a bit of a simplistic story for an RPG, but remember, this is supposed to be an entry point into the genre. That's one of the things that makes Super Mario RPG kind of hard to really talk about amongst other RPGs because you can't really judge it like other games in the genre. The same is kind of true for the gameplay, although it's a little bit more RPG typical. Explore a variety of field and dungeon locations where you can get into touch base encounters. Battles give you four options, attack, magic, item, or other. Mostly, I think other is just defense and run, but still, it's an option. Each one is mapped to one of the face buttons on the Super NES. Uh, these are all pretty self-explanatory, though. It's worth noting that flower points, FP, what would be MP, magic points in a more traditional RPG, come from a shared pool. Each character doesn't have their own. The key differentiator here is the timed hit system. Press a button at the right time when attacking or using magic, and you will be afforded an extra hit, additional damage, or an additional effect. This also works on defense, where a well-timed button press will result in minimizing or outright mitigating damage. It's simple, but it forces you to stay alert and pay attention, and it makes every battle some level of engaging. You have to constantly be focusing. You can't just like zone out and tap the attack button. It's also fairly well balanced. The stronger the attack is, the harder the timing is to get the extra hit. That's the same for defense. The stronger the enemy, the more powerful the spell, the harder it tends to be to, to get the timing down to block the hit. Some of these get pretty, pretty precise as the game goes on, although early on they're very easy. All the characters are viable. You come in with a party of three, and every single one's fun to play as. Uh, you know... All the characters receive experience, whether they fight or not, so you can switch them in and out without having to worry about them being under-leveled. You know, uh, they all kind of 
even though their Mario characters do fit into more typical RPG character archetypes. Mario's the OP hero, Bowser's a physical tank, Mal is an offensive spellcaster, uh, Toadstool's the healer, Gino is more like an all-rounder, good attack, good magic. Um, you know, describing Super Mario RPG in, in this context almost makes the game feel like it's, it's bare bones. But you have to experience it yourself to truly appreciate how fun it is. The battles are just so engaging that they always feel interesting, and even if they're not particularly complex. Exploration is also a little bit different here from what you would see in most RPGs. Mario's platforming routes are definitely represented here, with many locations asking you to make tricky jumps or clear various obstacles. This stuff usually frustrates me when they try to include it in RPGs, but it's well done here, and it's almost like never mandatory to advance the game. There's usually like some treasure or a hidden item behind it, but or an easier path, but it's not mandatory to advance. That's the way it should be. You can have it, you know, you can have it required for secrets, you can have it required to take easier paths, but not just to move forward at all. A lot of RPG fans hate stuff like this, myself included, but it works here. And part of that's because of the license, right? You almost expect it in a game featuring Mario, even if it is Mario RPG, but a lot of it is just how fun all of the different areas are to explore. There's no true world map, which I don't love, but there's a good variety of dungeons, transitional areas, and towns, and they're all very clever and well-designed. Uh, there's not one location in this game that I dread visiting on a playthrough, which is something I don't think I could say for other uh, RPGs I, I've played. Places like Roseway, Star Hill, Bean Valley, they're all great transitional areas, while Kiro Sewer, the Forest Maze, and the Sunken Ship are memorable, classic RPG dungeons. The towns might be the strongest point here. There's not that many of them, but the ones that are are just great and memorable, from the dusty mining city of Moleville, to the shopping resort Seaside Town, to the good old-fashioned Mushroom Kingdom, which we've never up to this point really had an opportunity to explore we've just kind of known of its existence this game did a lot to expand on mario's relatively flat world not just you know physically 2d flat but you know like flat in in terms of story and you know characters and growth and things like that you have small little details like the toads in mushroom kingdom and the toads in roseway having different designs on their heads you know it kind of helps it's a silly little thing, but it helps, like, build the world and, and shows you that, you know, the toads that you see in the platformers, there are other, there, yes, there are, in fact, other toads out there living in a different part of the world. You know, my favorite town might be Monstro Town, which is a small village inhabited by monsters who have grown tired of fighting and just want to settle down for a peaceful life. Many of Bowser's former associates end up here after Smithy's attack, and it's kind of cool to see creatures like Goombas and Thwomps just like chilling, living their best lives. It's something I think is kind of cool. So in terms of presentation, Super Mario RPG is one of the better looking games of its era. Its graphics were downright revolutionary for its time, and they still look solid even today. That's not always the case with titles that had more experimental graphic styles at the time. Uh, this game pushed the Super NES to its absolute graphical limit. It looks as good or better than any early 5th gen titles uh, that it was competing against at this point because, you know, the PlayStation and Saturn had been out for a while uh, by 1996. 
Control is tight and responsive, wouldn't expect anything else from Mario, and actually did a great job making the controls feel similar for fans of the series. It's genuinely shocking how a 3D RPG can feel so much like a 2D platformer. Um, one of the the only one issue I, I kind of had with this the the isometric uh, camera makes certain jumps really hard to do. But again, it's not like a platformer where you're falling to your doom if you mess up, so it's not too bad. The soundtrack is just an all-time classic. It's almost 30 years old, and I still can't get the Forest Maze song out of my head. You know, and that's just one of them. There were so many memorable songs here that just perfectly convey the atmosphere that developers were trying to get at. It's epic, but it's also whimsical. And that's something that's that I, I am not sure that I thought that they'd be able to do. You know, it's uh, it's got that Mario vibe to it, but it also feels like an RPG soundtrack, which is is a kind of a hard balance to get. Now... That's not to say that Super Mario RPG is not without flaws, because like I said, no perfect games, even my 10s, have flaws. But one of the things that keeps Super Mario RPG so kind of high on my list and high in regard is a lot of those flaws don't feel really like flaws. Uh, some of the issues are kind of more a function of the game's intended audience and, you know, its intended spot in the genre than its actual problems. You know, the biggest issue here is the difficulty, or lack thereof. This very well may be the easiest RPG I have ever played. If it not, it's very close. This thing makes Mystic Quest look like Seventh Saga. It's that easy. But it's kind of supposed to be. Remember, this is supposed to be an entry point for new RPG fans. Even still, it might be a little too easy, especially once Princess Toad School joins your party. Even a fledgling RPG gamer or like a young gamer is going to have very little difficulty making her into an almost unkillable tank. And her healing magic so cheap and easy to use that she's going to be able to keep the party upright with just little effort. Once you find her, her best armor, she's basically indestructible. And because she has a revive spell, that means so is the rest of your party. A lot of the difficulty here does come from the exploration in minigames, finding all the hidden treasure boxes. I think there's 50 that are strewn throughout the world, and they are not obvious where a lot of them are hidden. Um, you know, getting the best times on the minigames like Booster Hill and the, the Climb, stuff like that. But none of that's really necessary to finish the game. You know, I can't fault the dungeons for being easy because they're so well designed that they're fun anyway. The fact that they are just absolute walkovers doesn't almost matter. Um, that might be a problem for some people. It's not for me. But there are things that just, even for an entry-level RPG, it's just taking it a step too far. Sometimes when you use an item, you'll get a quote-unquote freebie, and it will replace the item for free. That's a little too much, even for a beginner's RPG. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's way more frequent than it should be. Even as a kid, I thought the game was easy. But again, I was coming off of stuff, you know, Final Fantasy 2, or now 4, it was 2 at the time, 6, Breath of Fire 2. You know, the former two of those games, I almost kind of considered, like, the baseline for, like, average difficulty of an RPG. 6, especially. The latter of those games is definitely more on the difficult side. Um, not as difficult as people make it out to be, but we'll get back to that when we talk about it. You know... Other than that, though, there really 
isn't much to complain about. Sometimes they reuse monsters. Sometimes the game isn't super clear about what you're supposed to do. Land's End, not my favorite area. But that's all nitpicking stuff. You know, the bottom line here is if difficulty is your be-all, end-all barometer of whether a game is good or not, you're not going to enjoy a Super Mario RPG as much as the rest of us. That's something I kind of understand. This is one of those games I like a lot that I very much appreciate kind of where its haters are coming from in this difficulty sense. But you have to once again remember, this was supposed to be an entry point into the genre. And honestly, it might be the best entry point into said genre. Uh, When I wrote about Quest 64 many, many moons ago, I think that was year one. Um, And I may have to talk about it on here too, because Quest is kind of considered like uh, my first RPG, a beginner's RPG, or, you know, whatever, what have you. You know, I talked when I about which games would be best to get someone into RPGs, and I kind of landed on one of two options, Super Mario RPG or the original Pokemon games, Red, Blue, Green. You know, after playing through both relatively recently and also trying to introduce my Pokemon-obsessed little guy to the OG games, I think I've come to the conclusion that Super Mario RPG is the better option. They're both better options than Quest, I can tell you that much. Um, it's way less obtuse than its handheld counterpart, but I I think its biggest thing is that it gradually immerses the player into the genre without ever overdoing it. It has small numbers. Uh, I think that hit points top out at, I don't even know if they top out at 999. Even if they did, you'll never get there. Uh, I think 255 it tops out at. That's, you know... It has tight dialogue, it has occasional platforming sections, and simple yet engaging combat. They make it perfect for someone who's looking to try their first RPG. Yet it's also so well made, and it's a great comfort game, right, for longtime fans. If you still want to get your RPG fixed, but you don't feel like grinding levels to battle the evil empire, or perfecting your setup before you go kill God, this is the game for you. In a way, Super Mario RPG is greater than the sum of its parts, and its parts are already pretty great. A lot of things that might be issues in an RPG, like simplicity and comparatively short length, you're looking at like 20 hours here if you do everything. Fight Culex, find the casino, all that stuff. Looking about 20, maybe 25 hours. Those things are problems in a lot of RPGs. They don't feel like problems here. Super Mario RPG is an absolutely classic game that's kind of in a space all its own. It's still a great playthrough all these years later. Um, it's, you know, if you can't find the original, track down the remake, which we're going to be discussing a little bit next week. You know, kind of differences, similarities between the remake and the original, and which one I kind of ended up preferring. So that's coming next week, but until then, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thanks for stopping by. Hope to see you back. But until then, happy gaming.